Well, good evening. How y'all tonight? A little quiet, a little quiet. Well, my name is Pastor Chris. I'm the pastor of Soul Care here at uh, Harvest. And hey, it is just a delight and a joy to be able to worship with you. Way to sing that last song, by the way. Woo! I got to figure out how I can preach after that song. You guys did a great job of lifting high the name of Jesus there. And I am delighted to be able to now open God's word with you um, in uh, Pastor Cody's absence. Now, you guys have been studying through the book of Ephesians um, going way back to last August, haven't you? And uh, Ephesians is really cool because it breaks into really two, uh, two really neat sections. And so last fall, you focused more on the salvation accomplished side of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 through 3. And, and what we saw there is, is that uh, uh, salvation is in Christ alone. And we were, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but thanks be to the Lord that in His grace and His love and His mercy, Jesus came, died for us, and all of those who have faith in Him and trust in Him alone for salvation are now resurrected to a new life and have a new relationship that's intimate in our union with Jesus Christ. So that's our salvation um, accomplished. It was accomplished by Jesus Christ. But with that comes an expectation. God has an expectation that we would live in a certain way, that we would be able to live out our salvation. And so the second half of Ephesians, Ephesians 4 through 6, is about our, the application of our salvation. What does the life of someone who follows Christ look like? And so you've looked at, at um, uh, various texts through four that talks about our interaction as a church family and how we should treat one another and, and act around one another. You've looked at what marriage should be, a Christ-centered marriage. You looked at Christ-centered parenting. Hold on to those two because you're going to come back to those later in life. You're going to need those later in life. You got to see what Christ-centered work looks like in the workplace, and I'm really grateful that now we get to finish out this series tonight in Ephesians 6, 10 through 24, and look at what it looks like to have a Christ-centered life standing firm in the midst of the uh, battles that we have in life. So, you guys ready? All right, grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to look at verses 10 through 24, so we'll finish out the book, Lord willing, if I have enough time this evening. So Ephesians 6, if you didn't bring a Bible, grab one in the seat back in front of you and uh, have somebody um, help you get there. We'll start reading here in just a second, but I want to tell you a little bit of a story. So back, way back in 1861, was anybody alive in that, in that time? 1861, Isabel was alive then. A few in the back, brave souls, were alive back then. Um, it was the start of the Civil War. So some Union soldiers fought against some Confederate soldiers in what came to be known as the First Battle of Bull Run. This was in July of 1861. And uh, the First Battle of Bull Run took place really in the countryside of Virginia, not far from Washington, D.C. Now, it was a fierce battle although it wasn't well organized, it was really the, the first major battle, if you, if you will, of the Civil War. It wasn't well organized, the soldiers and troops were not very well trained, but even with that, after the battle was over, about 4,000 men in total were killed or wounded in the battle. And that's the sad part. The interesting part about this is that while the fight was taking place, on a hill overlooking the battlefield, people started to gather 
to watch it take place. Not only that, they showed up with picnic baskets and opera glasses to watch it. Probably their version of dinner in a movie. And everything was good. They probably were enjoying themselves until suddenly the conf a Confederate counterattack broke through the ranks of the Union Army and the soldiers began fleeing. And guess where they started fleeing? R right toward the hill where the onlookers were. So all of a sudden, everyone on that hill knew that they were about to be in the middle of a big battle. Historians call this the worst picnic in the history of mankind. It was a bad day for those onlookers. Here's the thing. The onlookers learned a valuable lesson about war that day, and this is it. You cannot be close to the battle without being in it. Only foolish people think they can be amused by war without being affected by it. And here's my point. We're a lot like those spectators. We're a lot like those people on the hill eating a picnic, and we think that's what we're doing, being entertained by what's going on around us. The reality, though, is that the Christian life is war. We live in a war zone. Every day, we are on the battlefield, and if we don't realize it, then we're going to end up running away in fear. Or worse. That's the bad news. The good news is, if you're in Christ, then by virtue of our relationship with Him, we can stand firm in His strength by putting on His armor and standing shoulder to shoulder as we fight the battle together. That's what our text is about. In fact, the text for today in Ephesians 6 gives us three characteristics of standing firm in the Lord in resisting the forces of evil. You guys there? You at six, Ephesians 6.10? All right, let's jump in. Verse 10. Finally, finally is, is, uh, uh, means Paul's wrapping up his letter to, to the Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So here's the first characteristic of standing firm in the Lord. Um, we must be strong in the Lord. We must be strong in the Lord. This command to be strong in the Lord is passive. And so what I mean by that is, is the strength doesn't come from ourselves. It's not, a, uh, uh, it's not the mindset of a, a drink five Red Bulls and you're good to go kind of a thing. That's not it. The strength comes from someone, in this case from the Lord. It comes from outside us. It's not a pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of mindset. It's imposed upon us. And where does that strength come from? It comes from the Lord's power. You can see that in the, verse, in the end of verse 10. And in the strength of His, the Lord's might. So the Lord gives us, supplies us with strength, but we bear some responsibility. He commands us. He commands us to seek strength from the Lord. So the question then is, how do we do this? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Uh, put on. Put on is another command. So Paul is, is giving us a second command here. So he's saying, what are we supposed to put on? We're supposed to put on the whole armor of God. Not some of the armor of God, not one piece of the armor of God, but the whole armor of God. This is how we obey the command to be strong in the Lord. This is what being strong in the Lord looks like, is to put on the whole 
armor of God. So another question, why do we need to do that? Well, the text tells us, put on the whole armor of God so that, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Hey, did you know that the devil's a liar? In fact, he's the chief of all liars. He invented lying. Just like Adam and Eve invented blame shifting, well, Satan gets the, uh, gets the patent for inventing uh, lying. He's smart and he's cunning. Here's what uh, one person says about that. The mention of the schemes of the devil reminds us of the trickery and subterfuge by which evil and temptation present themselves in our lives. Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. That's what the schemes of the devil are. I'll also note that while the schemes of the devil we, we automatically think are things that come from outside, there's also an internal reality, an inside reality to the schemes of the devil. What do I mean by that? Well, Scripture has a lot to say about the war, the, the internal war that's within us. For instance, James chapter 4, verse 1 says, what is this, What's the cause of all the, of the quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Paul himself in Romans chapter 7 even talks about the, um, the internal war that is raging inside of him. So the schemes of the devil are cunning, they're lying, they're deceptive, sometimes they're believable. And they come from us, or to us, rather, and they come out of us. It's a serious business. This is why Paul is saying, put on the whole armor of God. This is why Paul is saying, be strong in the Lord. So the first characteristic that we see here is that standing firm, above standing firm is to be strong in the Lord by putting on the whole armor of God. Here's the second one. The second characteristic of standing firm is that we must go to battle. We must go to battle with the Lord. Look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, th this word, for we do not wrestle, this word wrestle, that's a really interesting word. It's the only time right here in this spot that it's used in the entire New Testament. And so what it meant in the first century was that it was applied to the wrestling matches in the Greco-Roman world at that time. And what that means is, is it implies close hand-to-hand -hand combat. So sometimes when we think of fighting, we think of like, you know, the, the mod modern military technology. My, my nephew flies drones for the army. And so we oftentimes think of now when we're fighting, we're fighting from uh, the comfort of a military base while we're guiding a drone thousands of miles away shooting bad guys. That's not what this is implying here. No drones fighting the battles for us. This is implying that we're wrestling, we're, we're close, it's, it's upon us.
And Paul's calling us here to a life of arms. It's a call to a battle. It's a call to hand-to-hand combat. And here's the reason why we wrestle. We're not wrestling against the flesh and blood. If this was a flesh and blood thing, then we could have physical armor, we could have a real sword, and we could go kill some real bad guys, right? But that's not the kind of fight that we have here. What does it say? What does it say here? It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and the uh, spiritual forces of evil. All of those can be bundled together, and they're all describing one thing, Satan's army. Our battle is against Satan's army, Satan's kingdom. That's what it means to wrestle. And that's who we're wrestling with. Let's continue then. Look at verse 13. Therefore, therefore means in light of this truth, in light of what I just told you guys, take up. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So there's two reasons why, here that Paul lists again, why we need to stand firm. He says, first of all, we need to withstand in the evil day. This word withstand, it has this idea of remain unaffected. It means to resist. And so uh, it kind of has this idea of a defensive implications uh, surrounding it. But we're supposed to resist it. So as, as we're doing the battle and the, the forces of evil are, um, are attacking us, we're supposed, to, we're supposed to stand in such a way with the full armor of God that we withstand those attacks. Defensive posture. But second of all, it says here in the second part of this verse, so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all of that, to stand firm. So stand firm now has this idea of this solid, unyielding, unmovable, stable idea. Stand firm implies it will be unmovable, stable, determined. If you will, it's more of an offensive position. So our first posture is defensive, and then we're supposed to stand firm in such a way that it's a little bit more offense, offensive. So those are the two reasons why that Paul gives us a year in verse 13 as to why we should be putting on the whole armor of God. So here's the natural question that comes from that. What does that even look like? What does standing and fighting look like? Let's keep reading. First three words. Stand therefore having. Stand therefore having. You see, what, what Paul's about to describe here, he's about to describe how to stand by listing eight pieces of armor. How many pieces? Eight pieces of armor that we're supposed to put on. And the armor that Paul discusses brings to mind the armor of a Roman soldier from that day. So what I want to do is I'm going to pull up a picture of a Roman soldier. That's a good representation of what a first century Roman soldier and his armor look like. And I want to leave it up the entire time we're going through this list of armor as a good uh, picture of what Paul is, is, is most likely has in mind as he's talking and describing this. So, what's the first piece of armor? Well, let's look at verse 14. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. So the first piece of armor is the belt of truth, and we must fasten it on. Now, the belt that he was referring to was it, it was a little bit different, most likely, than the kind of belts that we wear today to kind of keep our, keep our pants up. 
Uh, this kind of belt probably refers to this leather apron type thing. Um, I know it doesn't sound very cool, but leather apron kind of thing that kind of hangs in such a way that it protects the upper legs or the thighs, because those are, those tended to be pretty vulnerable. And there's some pretty there's a pretty big artery that runs through your your thigh that if uh, the enemy were to um, uh, knife you there or or um, get you with a sword, you'd bleed out pretty quickly. So that was that was most likely what the type of belt that um, Paul had in mind here. The other thing that Paul has in mind here is not any old truth. It's not, it's not all truth. It's been said all truth is God's truth. I, I'm kind of on the fence with that, but he's not talking about all truth. He's talking specifically about the truth that's found in God's special revelation. In other words, his word. That's what he has in mind here. The question is, okay, then what's truth? What is truth? Pilate asked Jesus that question. Did Jesus answer? No. Jesus didn't answer him. That's a good question to ask. So what is truth? Well, Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the ultimate truth. Now I can understand why Jesus didn't answer Pilate. Pilate was looking at him. He was looking at truth. So if Jesus is the ultimate truth, then we must fasten that truth around us. That's the idea. We fight against the schemes of the devil with the truth of Jesus Christ. But this also requires that we know the truth of Jesus Christ. So do you? Now, I'm not talking about knowing facts about Jesus. I'm asking, do you really know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Maybe this is a better question to ask. Does he know you? One of the scariest places in Scripture is Matthew 7. This is scary for me. And Jesus says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And in that day, he says, They're going to go, But Lord, we did this for you, and we did this for you, and we did this for you, and we did this for you. And Jesus is going to go, Stop. Depart from me. I never knew you. So the first question that we have to ask ourselves is, do I know the truth? Namely, do I know Jesus? And does he know me? If you do know Jesus and he knows you, then the next question that follows is, what are you doing to increase your understanding of this truth? Plumb the depths the infinite depths of Jesus Christ. Because that's what we're going to be doing in heaven, so you might as well get a head start on it. So let's keep reading. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, piece of armor one, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So what's the second, what's the second piece of armor that we're supposed to put on? the breastplate of righteousness. So the question is there is, what is righteousness? What is right? What is wrong? See, God is the standard. God is the standard of what's good. God is the standard of what's right. God is the standard for what's wrong. He sets that standard. 
His holiness, his moral rightness, his godliness, that's the standard. Now, we may not be happy about that, and we may want to define good and right in our own eyes. We may want to say, this is righteous. Why? Because I, Chris Weisheim, have determined it to be righteous. We may want to do that, but we're wrong. That doesn't change the fact that God is the one who sets the standard, so we might as well submit to God's standard. And so righteousness then is this. It's obedience to God's standard. That's it. When we obey God's standards, God's commands for our lives, guess what? We are living in righteousness. So cool. By the way, when we're following and obeying our own standards or somebody else's standards, then what would that be called? The unrighteousness. So that's the breastplate. That's what's supposed to be be worn on our chests. Look at verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So what's the third piece of armor? It's uh, shoes. We're supposed to put shoes, and those shoes are um, of the gospel of peace. So the shoes are the gospel. I think what Paul's saying here is that we must always be ready to share the gospel. Must always be ready to share the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is what a dark, broken world needs to hear. It's the light shining in the darkness. Broken people in a broken world full of broken promises are looking for peace in the midst of the battle. And the gospel is what brings them peace. Isn't it interesting that we're supposed to fight? Paul calls us to wrestle, right? And normally we think of violence. But here, we're supposed to be ready to share the gospel, and Paul calls it the gospel of peace. So we fight with peace. How paradoxical is that? God's so cool. Be ready to share the gospel. Look at verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So the fourth piece of armor here is that we must take up the shield of faith. Faith is believing what God says, regardless of my situation or how I feel, trusting that he will do everything he has promised. That's faith. And what's interesting about faith is that the size of our faith determines the size of our shields. What do I mean by that? Um, You guys familiar with the video game Zelda? Is that that still a thing? Wow. Well, I remember when the very first Zelda game came out, And that's what I had in mind when I was writing this illustration. Um, But when you first start out playing, when I first started playing that uh, Zelda game, when I was was younger than I am now, um, you start out the game with this wooden, dinky, small shield, right? Doesn't offer a lot of protection. but, but, But here's the thing. As you keep moving and progressing through the game, you have these opportunities to keep upgrading your shields. And by the time, if you do it right, by the time you get to the end of the game, then your shield pretty much covers your entire body and offers a ton of protection. Well, the the wimpy dinky shields are like, that's like new believer's faith. 
when they first come to Christ. Thanks be to the Lord that he's made salvation possible when we don't need a, a, a strong faith. But as we grow in the Lord, our Christian lives should be marked by continued maturity and in the Lord so that as we do and we grow, our faith in the Lord grows. And guess what? Our shields grow, if you will, if I could use that metaphor, and it offers more protection. So that's a good illustration, I think, for what Paul is saying here. So here's a question. How do I know the size of my faith? How do I know the size? Well, one way we can know is by the kinds of flaming arrows the devil flings at us that impact us. Why is that important? Well, look, it says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I think the ESV softens the word darts a little too much. I think a better word is arrows flaming arrows. So one type of flaming arrow, for example, is the lies we tend to believe about ourselves and God. That would be one example of a flaming arrow. Chris, can you give us some examples of what you mean by the lies, the kind of lies we tend to believe about ourselves and God? Yes, I can. Here are some. Here are some lies that we tend to believe about ourselves. I'm just worthless. Just worthless. I'm just a failure. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares for me. I'm all alone. Nobody gets me. Nobody gets me. I'm just ugly. I'm just a piece of trash. I'm just a chewed up piece of gum thrown out on the concrete. Some of those sound familiar? Here's some lies we tend to believe about God. God doesn't care for me. God doesn't love me. You know, you know, Pastor Chris, God is just this harsh God. He's just like this divine bug zapper. He's just waiting for me to mess up, to screw up my life so he can go... Gotcha. God's just harsh. He demands too much. God's not able to help me. He's not strong enough, powerful enough. <laughs> you know, God's the one who made me ugly. It's his fault. God has abandoned me. God's not in control. God is not good. By the way, all of those examples I just gave are statements made to me that I've heard from people in our church family. So let me ask it again. How's your faith? What lies are you believing about yourself and about God? By the way, how do we fight against lies? We fight lies with the truth. And we have to preach the truth to ourselves. Do you see how all of this, these pieces of armor are linked together? Let's keep moving. Verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation. 
So the fifth piece of armor is, is the helmet of salvation, and we're supposed to put it on. In other words, we're supposed to wear our salvation. How does our salvation protect us? Well, here's how it protects us. It reminds us of what Christ has done. God has rescued us from sin, death, and wrath. He has made us new. He has adopted us, forgiven us, and now he is transforming us into the image of Jesus. And this is why we still need the gospel in our lives. We need it every day. It doesn't stop when we come to Christ. We need it all the time. When we lose sight of who we are, the gospel reminds us that we are His. But not just the helmet of salvation. Look, it says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So that's the sixth piece of armor. We must take up the sword of the Spirit. Now, the sword is not just a defensive weapon. It's an offensive weapon. So what God is saying is he doesn't want us to just cower behind our shields of faith, just getting pummeled all the time. He wants us to stand in such a way that we actually go on the offensive, that we actually begin to fight back. How do we do this? Well, Jesus modeled this. He modeled this perfectly. The wilderness. He was in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Satan came at him with fiery arrows at a time where Jesus in his humanity was at his most vulnerable after having not eaten for 40 days, which is possible. And how did Jesus respond? He resisted the devil with scripture. He responded to Satan's arrows by quoting scripture. Of course, this means that we need to practice wielding the sword, and that means we need to practice what? We need to know our Bibles. But I can't tell you how many people, when they come to Christ, they just stop. They, 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 they don't even open the Bible. They just put it off on the shelf, and they, they, they never open it up and start figuring out what this sword is all about and how to use it in the battle. Listen, we can't fight off Satan and the spiritual forces of evil. We can't fight off those internal, the internal war that is struggling if we don't know God's Word, and we don't know how to handle God's Word rightly. So, so far, we've listed six pieces, and you're like, well, Pastor Chris, that's really pretty much all of it. Um, next, it looks like he's moving on, but he isn't really. There's something else. There's two other things that are not depicted necessarily by this image of a Roman soldier. Look at, at verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So the seventh piece of armor, I'm calling it armor, is that we must be constant in prayer. We are supposed to live prayer-saturated lives should permeate every aspect of our lives. John Piper calls prayer a wartime walkie-talkie. <laughs> I like that. A wartime walkie-talkie. And our armor is not complete without it. It's a two-way communication with God. Here's a confession. As I was studying this this week, preparing to, to preach this tonight, I was convicted this is an area of my life where I need to grow in. I pray, sure. I pray every day. But I don't pray like this. And that needs to change. And I invite you to change with me. Here's the eighth piece. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. 
Middle of verse 18 says to keep alert with all perseverance. So Paul is calling us to stay alert. It's like it's this mindset. Shields ready. We're standing firm and we're alert. We're not going to be caught sleeping. So those are the eight characteristics. The first, sorry, the eight pieces of armor. The first characteristic, though, of standing firm is to be strong in the Lord. The second is to uh, that we must go to battle. Here's the third and last one. We must be devoted to one another. Verse 18, middle of 18. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then Paul says, and also for me. And also for me. The words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought. Supplication means to fervently ask or beg for something. So, friends, we should be urgently asking, begging God on behalf of one another. All the time. We should pray for boldness. Verse 21, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Friends, we should also be Um, with one another regularly. Don't isolate yourself from the body. Why is this important? Because it encourages, verse 22, it encourages our hearts. And what does this look like? It kind of looks like this. Go ahead and put up the next picture. This is the idea. The Romans were were known for their battle formations. This is one of them. This is one that was known as uh, the tortoise formation the turtle formation. The soldiers would, would link their shields together side by side, and then they would come and have, it would be like a, a box or a cube, and then the sh- soldiers on the side would do this, and then sh- they would be protected from behind with the same thing, and then soldiers in the middle would take their shields and lift them up over the heads of everyone, and so they would then move as one unit into battle. Can you imagine how difficult that would be to penetrate through to that? That's the idea of being devoted to one another. That's the idea. So the Christian life is a call to stand firm in the midst of the battle. And we stand firm by being strong, by going to battle, and by being devoted to one another. Here's one last thing I want to point out. This is so cool. This is the best part. It's this. This passage that we just went through is rich with Old Testament allusions about Jesus the Messiah. It's rich with Old Testament allusions about the Messiah as our divine warrior king. Let me just put up one verse or two verses on the screen for you to see. We don't have time to turn there. And as, as, let me give an example in Isaiah 11, 4 through 5. Um, that passage is, is a, a prophetic passage about the coming Messiah is it's the righteous branch that would spring forth from the stump of Jesse and they're talking about the Messiah who we know is Jesus he would the spirit of the Lord would be upon him and 
this is what he would do. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. There's many other passages in Isaiah alone that talk about Messiah being this warrior king. So here's the cool part, guys. Um, we have him. We have him as our divine warrior. And guess what? He's not sitting up in heaven, sitting down, leaving us to our own devices. By virtue of our relationship with him, our union with him, he is fighting alongside with us. It's his armor. He's given it to us and he's fighting with us. We're not alone. We're not fighting alone. Jesus Christ is fighting with us, guys. If you're taking notes, write this passage down. Because I want you to read tonight before you go to bed. You didn't think you were going to get a homework assignment tonight, did you? I want you to read this passage tonight. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. That's going to tell you how all of this ends. The divine warrior king is physically coming back, guys. And that should encourage us today. So put on the full armor of God. Stand firm. Be strong. Go to battle. Be devoted to one another. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, the war will be over. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for texts like these. We thank you for your promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. We thank you for the exhortations, the commands that you give us, and the, the strength and the willpower and the desire to do that, Lord. Thank you so much that you have not left us to fight the forces of evil on our own, Lord, that you are with us, and that Jesus is not some wimpy guy that's portrayed in Hollywood today. He's the Revelation 1, Jesus Christ, our strong, divine, warrior, king. And to that, we pray, King Jesus, come. Come and get us, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We ask you to help us to stand firm. And we pray, pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.